This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Welcome to another edition of Samson Sit Down. The word of the day on Nothing Personal is Tory, as in Joe Tory. We are blessed to be joined by a Hall of Famer, the greatest manager I ever saw manage up close and personal many times. Baseball executive, unbelievable player, by the way, which not enough people know and we'll talk about. Joe Torrey, welcome to Nothing Personal. How are you? Good, David. It's uh, nice being with you. It is so good to see you. You were, uh, I think back to my career over 18 years and how amazing it was all the time we spent together. I didn't love the time when you were the chief baseball officer because the only time we'd ever talk is when I was grumpy about something and you would not be able to ever rule with me. <laughs> I don't know why that would be. Well, I always knew which way to vote, you know, as soon as I got your idea, you know, and then, <laughs> I, then I figured I'd go the other way. I'm not even talking about the competition committee, which we were on, which was something that we talk about in this show, some of the rule changes and some of the interesting things that actually could start happening, Joe. But I'm talking about in your role as you were the arbiter between teams when they had issues with the umpires or teams with plane rules or on-field discipline. So anytime there was an issue, we had to go to you. You were in charge. And I always thought that it was interesting that you chose to go to that position after having been a Yankee and a manager for so long. Why did you want that amount of agita after you were done managing? Well, you know, what's interesting is I met with Bud Selig uh, while I was managing the Dodgers. And he says, think about this. I, I've got an opportunity. I've got an offer for you. You come to work in the commissioner's office, you know, make, you know, you run baseball operations. I said, you sure I'm capable of doing that? He says, no problem. So, you know, again, I, I was talking with the Dodgers at that time about possibly extending another year. And I, you know, I think that conversation with the commissioner changed my mind. I, I just felt I, uh, first of all, I, I trusted Bud Selig. I, I enjoyed, you know, relationship I've had with him. So I made the leap. And, and you know what, David, it, it was really a, another perspective. I mean, I've, I've covered this game from, you know, so many different aspects. Of course, obviously a fan first and foremost when I was a kid growing up. Um, and then I was a minor league player, a major league player, a uh, broadcaster in the middle of, uh, you know, a couple of firings. And, you know, then I uh, got a chance to manage the Yankees, which was a bonus job for me. Had the success I never had anywhere else, uh, working for George Steinbrenner. And, you know, and, and in my hometown to boot. So, you know, it was, uh, I think I had closed the circle and you know, it gave me another perspective when I did work is you get a chance to, you know, make decisions like the one, you know, one you're alluding to about, you know, disputes with uh, umpire situations, whatever it was. It was awfully nice uh, sitting in that seat and, and not uh, wearing a uniform where I wasn't biased in one way or the other. And uh, I've always been a guy and, um, 
you know, I, I was a player rep, a league rep, uh, when Marvin Miller was uh, the executive director of the Players Association. And I always felt I was a voice of reason. I, I, I just felt fairness because I thought the game deserved that. You know, you say fairness, and when you're managing a team, you had to change on a dime because as a manager, you have one point of view, and that's it. What you saw from the dugout and what your players tell you happened and what your bench coach, Don, you know, you were sitting next to Don Zimmer. If Don Zimmer tells you something happened or there's a rule issue or anything, that's just what it is. And so you have to understand the frustration that we would feel as executives going to you over an issue that happened over a play at the plate. One of my biggest memories is calling you. There was a problem with the play at the plate. And I was sure that it would be reversed and that we would protest and the protest would be upheld. And we did not get the ruling that I thought we deserved. And I, what I appeal to you, and I'll never forget this. I said, Joe, you've got to understand as a manager, this was an, a no brainer. You know exactly what happened. And I don't know if you remember what you said to me. You said, David, that may be true, but today you are not talking to me as a manager. And I had a hard time differentiating because for me, I thought you were not going to be neutral. I thought that you'd have a full understanding of where we were coming from as a team. Yeah, I mean, I, I try to take both sides. And, and trust me, you know, uh, here I represented the umpires. I represented managers. You know, I felt I, I, I represented both sides because that, that was my job as, as uh, you know, executive uh, vice president of baseball operations or later on chief baseball officer. And, you know, the, the perspective, you, first of all, you never forget what it was like to be a player. When we had the collision at the plate, you know, with with the uh, with the Giants, and, and they lost their catcher. That was us. That was the Marlins with yeah, Scott. No. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, I, I had Bruce Bochy calling me and and just telling me you've got to do something about this. And I said, Bruce, you know, I, I as a player, I never experienced this a lot because no third base coach in his right mind would send me home in a close play because of my ability <laughs> not to run very fast. And, and, you know, and, and, and then, you know, when I realized that's the way baseball is, you're going to have injuries and stuff. The sad part about it is, uh, you know, the, 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 the catcher in that situation was just in, in a tough position. And when, you know, he got Buster hit. Posey, by the way, Buster, the Buster number was, one you know, catcher. He, he was fumbling to get the ball and, and really put himself in a compromised position. And we've all done it. I mean, I, I, I can um, – well, let me, let me finish my thought first, and then I'll go to that. And so, Pose, I mean, um, Bochi, you know, would tell me about changing a rule. And I said, you know, Bruce, I, I feel your pain. I said, but I – I, I really can't see anything that we could really do and get, you know, get something changed. And then uh, I'd be getting uh, letters uh, from parents of, of players who played in the minor leagues and got, you know, just beat up at home plate and carried off the field. And I just felt it was an obligation that we needed to find a way to try to make it safer for those catchers. And, uh, and, and, and the runners too, because, you know, the, you know, catchers could get you in a position where they can hurt you. I, and I'll tell you later on as a player, uh, I was trying to score. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, um, Glenn Beckett was trying to score like Glenn Beckett, who was with the Cubs and I was catching. And as he was getting to me at the plate, if we had the rules then that we have now, I used the hip, you know, to just, you know, have him hit my hip. And, you know, he, he sort of tumbled over behind home plate. And because I figured when you, when you think about what's there to lose, because he's going to score anyway, if it was a violation, he's going to be safe. If I don't do it, he's going to be safe. So, and, and the, the sad part about it, and of course, Beckert and I talked about it afterwards. When I did get the ball 
and I went to tag him while he was reaching for the plate. As I was stepping to tag him, he stuck his hand out to touch the plate, and I wind up stepping on his hand. So you, you talk about and, yeah, not purposely, but it added insult to injury. And, uh, you know, obviously we've changed it. We haven't really had, you know, uh, without a violation, we haven't really had a guy carried off the field. And, you know, with the money that players make ownership-wise, have to say, uh, you know, that's a good idea. You don't want to lose your players like they lost Posey for a while. So it uh, it was something. Then, of course, we had the issue at second base in, in the postseason. Uh, and, you know, we had to do something there, too. You know, talking about your time as a player, Joe, I was thinking back, how many of your Yankee players would you say, some of the, your young ones, maybe even some of the older ones, how many of them knew what an unbelievable career you had as a player and that as a manager, you, you were, you're in the Hall of Fame, no question about that, but you were an MVP, a batting champion, an all-star multiple times, almost 10 times. I think nine times you were an all-star. Did your players know that? Did you talk about your playing career with your players? I really did. I, I, I never did. And it was really funny that you mentioned that because when I was managing the Cardinals, I remember uh, John Cruck and, and John, you know, was a character. Uh, and I was out for batting practice, and, and the uh, the Phillies were just warming up. <clears throat> and he come over to me. He says, you know what? You were a pretty good player, you know, because he must have picked up a press guide or something and looked through stats and, and things like that. But, no, I, I've never, you know, play, players did allude to it, like a Jeter would allude to it and, and stuff. But, uh, you know, most of the players, I can tell you, David, when, you know, they see your manager, they think you were born as a manager. You know, they don't even think that there was actually, there are a lot of players out there that didn't think the game existed before they started playing it. But, uh, you know, I, I never really had, a, I, I never really talked about, other than my experience, I never really talked about my career based, you know, as far as uh, accolades. It's always been interesting to me because, Often players have no idea that their manager, what the background is of their managers. They're oftentimes, I had conversations with Miguel Cabrera that he had never heard of some of the biggest names in baseball history, whether they were players or whether they were managers, just not a student of the game, just didn't have the opportunity or the desire. He just had the skill and the ability. And it, it's not a coincidence. I mean, we're, we're telling listeners the position you played, you told the story as a catcher. Uh, there are a lot of catchers who go on to be managers. Why do you think that a catcher, the only player who actually faces field, the only defender who's actually facing the entire field, I've always asked and wanted to learn from you as what made you from an all-star player as a catcher, you weren't a smash success immediately as a manager. People forget that you had an entire managing career and hired and fired, and then the Yankees come. What clicked in New York other than having some Hall of Fame players? But something must have happened, and I'd love to talk about your interview with Steinbrenner and what, how this all happened. Because when you were hired, I was in New York, not in baseball, and it was not exactly the most lauded hiring of all time. Well, there's no question about it. I, <clears throat> uh, initially... After I was fired in St. Louis, and, you know, I played, for, I played for the Braves, I played for the Mets, I played for the Cardinals, managed all three of those teams, was fired by all three of those teams. I figured that was the end of it. I was fired by the Cardinals in, uh, in June of 95. And I think it was uh, September or October of that year, I got a call from Gene Michael who was the general manager of the Yankees and he was going to step aside and, and just be a consultant for George and then run the scouting department. And he asked if uh, I'd be interested in talking to him about becoming general manager. And I said, sure, because you know, when you get fired, David, you know, you, and then somebody all of a sudden is interested in you, you know, it's, it's an ego thing that you needed to have happen for yourself. So, I flew to Tampa and sat with uh, 
with uh, Gene and Joe Malloy, who was the president of the ball club at that time. And they offered me the job as general manager. And I said, which I knew the answer when I asked the question. I said, is there any, uh, any vacation time? <laughs> and, and Stick Michael says, no. I said, oh, okay, well, I don't think I could take it because my wife, Allie, was pregnant with our daughter at the time. And I, I just felt that I, uh, it was just timing-wise, it wasn't going to work. And then I, you know, I thanked them for the opportunity. Thanks for the offer. And then if, you know, if anything I can help you with down the road, just let me know. And I, I, I was referring to if they wanted information on somebody that they thought I would know and whatever. And, and I don't know how long it was after that, probably about two or three weeks, uh, maybe less than that. I get a call from one of George's consultants, Arthur Richmond. And I know you knew Arthur Richmond. And he says, Joe, he says, would you like to be put on the, the list or short list of uh, being the Yankee manager? I said, sure. Well, I come to find out that there were three other people on that list. Uh, Tony La Russa, uh, David Johnson, and Sparky Anderson. Well, Sparky had retired, you know, after the replacement year, he had had enough. Uh, Tony La Russa was already entrenched in my job that I got fired from in St. Louis. And Davey Johnson was committed to the Baltimore Orioles. So there I was, you know, the lone wolf at that point in time. And I was hired. I think I was hired by default. And, you know, but as you mentioned a little earlier, you know, you, you, you know, my previous managing jobs, yeah, I went to, we went to the postseason with the Braves my first year there in 82. But my record, total record, was uh, 100 games under 500. And, you know, and then um, I was hired. Uh, as you said, uh, you know, there was abuse. I remember I was living in Cincinnati at the time because after I had fired in, in St. Louis, my wife being pregnant in her home town was Cincinnati. We moved to Cincinnati because she was pregnant and I felt if I was going to look for a job, I didn't want to leave her alone. So she had family there. So, um, you know, I, I, when I was hired, the, the headlines were clueless Joe and then the, the daily news in New York, but you know what? It, it never bothered me. I, I never felt the the pressure of, uh, you know, that I needed to, uh, I mean, I, you feel pressure right away, not only because you work for, uh, for George Steinbrenner, but you want to find out if you can really do this job. You know, I, I may have, you know, didn't have as good of players in the other places I managed. I mean, the first, you know, when I first got my managing job, that was with the Mets in 1977. I was 36 years old. And my my first bit of business was trading Tom Seaver. So that I mean, there you go. Give you an idea. I've but, never you know, traded a good player before, so I have no idea what you're talking yeah, about. I, I understand. I understand. So, you know, when I when I took that job, I was very nervous going to spring training my first year. But going to New York, there was a certain comfort about being in New York for me, and um, and I knew that you know all the stress would be ratcheted up but that didn't seem to concern me and so uh, my my biggest issue in going to spring training was what am I going to tell the players you know I I tell them my credentials as a manager doesn't really work it's not going to impress anybody and I I remember uh, I said am I going to have to change am I going to have to do this differently and and then I was picking up. I, I remember I was in the uh, the gym working out, and I was looking at Bill Parcells as one of his management coaching books. And uh, you know, one of the one of the chapter uh, titles was "If you believe in what you're doing, stay with it." And at that point in time, I closed that book. I said, you know, you, you had, especially in our game. You have to be yourself. I mean, it's every single day. 
uh, you know, your personality is going to come out at some point. So you're not going to trick anybody. Can we go so back to the first, interview process show for one second and then return? Because yeah. you passed over something that um, I, I can't believe, given how many managers I interviewed and hired and fired. Was George never part of an interview process for you to become manager? George called me and said, you're my guy. <clears throat> and you had never met him? I, well, I had met I had known him because I managed in New York with the Mets. And, and you know, you, you always had social events, some baseball events together. And, you know, George and I had, uh, you know, I enjoyed our relationship, but I knew it was going to be different once you work for him. And, you know, I mean, he used to get me, uh, you know, I'd call him and I'd say, George, is it possible I can, uh, that you can get me a couple of Super Bowl tickets? He never said no to me. He, he always, you know, got me, you know, got me Super Bowl tickets. But again, when you work for him, it's a different animal, man. You know, the, the demands are very high. Uh, but I, for some reason, David, I, I felt this was a bonus. I wasn't supposed to have this job, and I was just going to go out there and do the best I could. So I, he you was pick your it, coaching staff, Joe. Uh, well, I I picked. Uh, let me see. I brought uh, Jose Cardinal. I I brought Chris Chambliss, who was with me in Atlanta, uh, a player and. And then they had players in place. They had Tony Kloniger, who was a teammate of mine with the Braves. Uh, they had Willie Randolph, who I had absolutely no problem with. What about your and, bench coach? Uh, my bench coach, well, I, I had Don Zimmer. I, I mean, I uh, – and, and again, I never had a relationship with Don Zimmer. I knew him, but I was trying to think about First of all, I'd never been in the American League, so I needed someone who had some experience in the American League, and Zimmer came to mind for me because, you know, we used to talk a little bit when he was coaching with Colorado, and, and you know, and pretty much we were in Colorado when he retired. I remember he, you know, walked in the clubhouse middle of the game and, you know, put his street clothes on and said that was it, so... So I knew he wasn't working, and so I, I wanted someone who had experience. Well, he managed in the American League. He managed in the National League. He coached for the Red Sox, and he coached for the Yankees. I said, he's a natural for me. I mean, I, don't, I have no idea if we're going to get along, but if, if someone is going to tell you the truth, it's Don Zimmer because that's the kind of straight shooter he, he was. And – so, and I had trouble convincing him because he and George Steinbrenner, Steinbrenner were very close. You know, they, they shared an interest in, in the horses and they used to go to the track together in the off season because they both lived in the Tampa area. So uh, once I convinced Don that uh, George didn't influence my, my, my choosing him, uh, he accepted and, you know, that one. And then my pitching coach was Mel Stottlemyre. And again, he was on the outs with the Yankees at the time. Uh, and it was, uh, again, it, it was Arthur Richmond who said, what about Mel? You know, I said, I'd love to have Mel, but I, you know, I don't know if those waters are smooth enough to come back over here. And I, I called Mel and asked him if he'd be interested in the job. And he was, and you know, that pretty much uh, got it all put together. I think that people may not be very clear that being a manager for the New York Yankees and for George Steinbrenner was not exactly the, the type of job where you buy a house and you settle <laughs> in. Uh, there were lots of managerial changes long before the Marlins and when I was president going through all those managers. George Steinbrenner was the king. It, famously, he hired and fired the same manager, Billy Martin, I want to say three times, but it could even be more, went through managers quickly. And then Joe Torre shows up in, now, 95, we didn't mention, that was the year that the strike ended. So you were let go only a month and a half into that season, which started late at the end of April in 95. Mm -hmm. And you were right back in the dugout in 96. And you didn't, through that whole story you neglected to say, which is exactly your personality, that you won the World Series in 1996. Just a little tiny nugget there. 
as the first yeah, of your we, four World Series. And we were not favored by any stretch of the imagination. But I, uh, you know, my first meeting, uh, I, you know, I knew I had to make an impression that, that you don't realize, David, what kind of pressure there is when you have a, you know, you have a room full of players, pretty good darn players. Uh, they had come with on a whisker the year before of going to the World Series, you know, after Seattle came back on them and, uh, you know, beat them in the postseason. And so uh, I and I had never been to a World Series uh, other than buying a ticket. And I, I said that to these players. I looked at my coaches. And as it turned out, every single one of my coaches had been to a World Series, either as a staff member or as a player. And I, I looked over at my, my coaching staff. I said, guys, I have never been to a World Series. I said, and I said, but every single one of my coaches have been to a World Series. And I said, we're over here. We have one job. I said, I don't want to win one World Series. I want to win three in a row. And I, and I said that at the time. Uh, you never know if anybody's listening or paying attention during those meetings. But uh, several players had mentioned it to me afterwards, not that day, but down the road. But I just felt that as a baseball fan and of course being in the in the sport i always noticed when teams won whatever sport they were playing uh, most of those teams just disappeared you know they spent the off season celebrating like the chicago bears you know they were on a tour to go sing and dance places and and, and so that was the, that was really what was behind my saying I didn't want to win just one. I wanted to win three in a row because I feel, you know, you win one and people can say it's a fluke. If, if you win two, they can't do that. And, and I felt it was very important uh, that if we were going to establish who we were, we were going to have to have some kind of consistency. And as you so Whoever dreamed you're going to win five, four in the first five years. I mean, that was nuts. Well, you, first of all, the one organization that stopped you from a five-peat was the Marlins, who That's won right. in 97, and then the Yankees won in 98, 99, 2000. And you were in the World Series again in 01. Oh, so, 01, we were through six outs away, three outs away from, from winning, you know, four in a row. And, uh, you know, it didn't pan out. So I was thinking two things that I wanted to point out. I'm sure someone's mentioned this to you before. You could have had three Pete instead of Pat Riley. If right then in 1996, you had said, I want three in a row, let's call that a three Pete. You could have copyrighted <laughs> that, but Riley got it. That's right. Uh, Riley's just a friend of mine. So good for him. He's, he certainly earned that. I'm going to say, I'm going to tell Pat next time I see him that he got it from you. <laughs> so you were going in, in 2001. I want to skip to that year. Let me, let me say something as long Please. as we're on that subject of Pat Riley. Uh, I knew Pat well enough to, uh, you know, when I was managing the Cardinals, you know, to try to gain some perspective. I, you know, I, I called him one, uh, one day and I said, Pat, give me something. I, I need, I need some perspective because, you know, managers and coaches need perspective so they can, you know, make, you know, make sense to his blood, to their players. And, and, you know, I said, give me some perspective. He says, in your game, in your game, he says to me, you guys are allowed to lose 60 games. <laughs> you know, I, there's no other sport that you can go in saying, if we lose 60 games, we're champs, but your game. So it, it really gave perspective to, you know, and an and approach I had with the players that, you know, lose a game or two and it's, you know, don't panic and don't get yourself in a bad mood. Just keep working hard. So that pretty much, uh, I took that with me the rest of the time. You were always a very calm. I have this recollection. I'm going to jump ahead to 03 for a second before I go back to 01, because I watched you manage from afar, both as a fan then as an executive, then as an actual competitor when the Marlins played the Yankees in 2003. 
And I had had Jack McKeon, we brought in that year after firing Torborg, Jeff Torborg. And in the World Series, I remember distinctly because where I sat at Yankee Stadium was outside the third base dugout. So I was looking into your dugout, your first base dugout. You manage in a way, there's no way to know the score. There's no way to know whether it's game four of the regular season or game six of the World Series. You have the same demeanor. And I learned as an executive, players really, really like that because they look to you. Should we be panicking now? Are we out of this game? Are we out of this season? Are we out of this series? And you never once let them see you sweat. And that is a, an attribute that I, I don't, you can't be taught that, Joe. You just have that. Is that well, the single one that helped you the most, do you think? Yeah, you know, playing the game, I think, David, helps you do that. Because, you you know, when when you're watching things on television, anytime something bad happens, they're going to show the coach or show the player, I mean, show the manager. And there's always some kind of reaction. And, and you know, I played for 17 years or 18 years, whatever it was, and uh, you always tried your best. And... Uh, I always felt that, you know, a guy makes an error, that's one thing. The only time I would show any emotion is if somebody uh, made a mental error and, and I had no no patience for mental errors. And, and we all make them. You know, I mean, I had uh, uh, Derek Jeter's rookie year. Where, you know, we're in uh, Chicago playing the White Sox and he's at second base with two out in the eighth inning. And it's either a tie score or a down by a run. And Cecil Field is the hitter. And, you know, the cardinal rule is you don't get to make the first or third out at third base. And he tries to steal. And and I I throw whatever I had in my hand. I'll never forget that because he was out. And, you know, there's Cecil. With, uh, he's going to lead off in the ninth inning now instead of hitting with a man at second. And And I was mad at myself because I had given Jeter – so much credit at that point in time and so much trust that I didn't put on a sign which say, don't try to run. Um, and so I, I remember saying to Zim, I said, I'm not going to say anything to him. I said, I don't, you know, we have a game to try to win here. I said, but we'll talk to him tomorrow. And after, because that was the third out, he was out at third base and somebody takes his glove out to him to, you know, play shortstop in the bottom of the eighth. After the bottom of the eighth is over, he comes off the field. And normally, guys who screw up. Uh, they go to the opposite well, end of the dugout, right? They go find down the water cooler or hide in the corner or whatever. Derek came right over between Zim and I and shimmied his way in between us and basically said, all right, give me whatever you want to give me. You know, I hit him in the back of the head and I said, get out of here. You know, I didn't have to say anything. Because he knew he screwed up, and you know, I, and there was really no conversation that was uh, was needed at that point in time. But that makes him the e- one of the easier players to manage. Then, how did you deal with the player who would do that exact thing? And I had plenty of them, and I know you did too. Who didn't know that it was actually a mental mistake? Did it again and again. What would be your approach with that kind of player? Oh no, we talk about it. I mean, I never, I never took for granted that somebody knew something or, you know, uh, or that you, you'd let something go. I've, I've had meetings, David, after games that we won, if I felt that we did too many things wrong. Uh, I, I just felt that it was – and when I had a meeting, I didn't grab somebody and pull them into my office. I had everybody there because I felt it was important. that uh, I looked at a, a ball club like it was family. And I didn't want anything, uh, anything but, you know, just transparency. I wanted everybody to know. And, and there, there was a day where I, I called out uh, Derek and A-Rod in the same game. And if, you know, in the same meeting, uh, pop-up dropped and, and neither one of them, you know, they, they let it drop. And I, and, and and I chewed them out in front of everybody, you know, and stuff like that. I just felt that was important that everybody needed to know that, we're, you know, we're all playing by the same rules and we all have to follow, you know, playing this game hard. And 
So I, I, I just felt everything was above board with my players and I needed to have, and as, and again, I never told them don't talk to the press. I, I just sort of, you know, let them know that, you know, this is our business. I'm not telling you don't go tell people, but you know, this, this, this is our house and, and, you know, let's, let's get things, you know, settled and solved, uh, you know, while we're together. But were you aware at the time that A-Rod and Jeter did not get along? When you're chewing them out, because one thing is to understand the sort of atmosphere in your clubhouse and the relationships, you were aware at that time, I assume, that these were not exactly uh, best friends, right? Yeah, but that that goes on, you know, on a lot of clubs. These guys were just high profile. I mean, if you look back at the Oakland club in the 70s, you know, they were battling in the clubhouse, but when they went between the lines, man, they – they played together as a team, and that's the most important thing. You know, I, I, I'm not a believer that chemistry comes first. Uh, I'm a believer that winning creates that chemistry. And it doesn't mean, you, you know, you go to dinner with somebody or have a cup of coffee with somebody or a beer. Uh, I, I just believe you have to have enough respect for each other that if, you know, I'm going to play hard, you better play hard, that type. We had players who, uh, Hanley Ramirez was not popular in our clubhouse, and I would ask some of his teammates about him, and they said, we will love Hanley for nine innings every day. And that's it. Because they just, they didn't get along. But what you're saying about players respecting the ability, when you've got an A-Rod and a Jeter, I was able to take advantage of their relationship when selling the Marlins, actually, because it's real, their dislike and sort of the two egos involved and both wanting to be owners. But when they're trying to win rings... And they're trying to win games. I've never seen a player, and I'm wondering if you have in your whole career, have you ever seen a player not make a play because they're so unhappy personally with a teammate? I've never seen it one time. Well, no, I, I, I haven't seen that because they're showing themselves up. But I, I, I've seen where guys will let one thing or another distract them. You know, it's tough enough to play this game when you're concentrating a hundred percent on what you're doing. If, if you're, if you're worried about, I'm mad at the owner or the general manager or, or the manager for that, for that matter. And, and it, it causes a distraction that that's not fair to the rest of your teammates. And, you know, cause we've had issues like that. We had guys who, you know, were, had one year left on the contract. They didn't know if they were going to be back. And, and, you know, my selling point with them, guys, we don't know what's going to happen next year. I don't know if I'm going to be here. It doesn't really matter. But let's see what we can accomplish while we're together now. And, you know, and, and I had a bunch of adults. I, I had a good group. Again, it's not that you don't get astray here or there. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I had the Ruben Sierra our first year, I remember, and I like Ruman a lot. I want to make I wanted to make him a regular player instead of just a DH because I didn't want to be locked in to one guy being DH. So I remember we're going into Seattle and I said to Ruben, I said, Ruben, you're not playing. I and I always delivered bad news as the manager. I, I would never just post a lineup and if somebody's used to playing, you know, without telling them. And I I, I remember calling Ruben, I said, Ruben. You're not playing today. You're going to play tomorrow, but you don't hit this guy very well. And I'm going to put somebody else in the game. He says, oh, okay. He says, but why am I not playing? I said, well, let me try this again. <laughs> and I went through this whole thing again, and I and I explained that his record against this particular pitcher wasn't good, and I, and I was going to skip him for the day. I mean, it, it's not like I was benching him. I just didn't play him that day. But, yeah, and, you know, he says, oh, okay. He says, but why am I not playing? Well, I, I – he didn't want to get it. It wasn't a matter of he didn't get it. He didn't want to get it. And we wind up trading him. You know, we traded him for, you know, for Cecil Fielder. And, um, and, and the thing that makes me feel good as a manager, I've had a few of those guys who disagreed with me a lot. One was Lairitz. Uh One was David Wells. Uh, of course, it was Sierra and, and Jeff Nelson. And every single one of those guys came back after they left. They came back. So, you know, that, that they went out and explored and they realized they had it pretty good. So, um, you know, that, that, those are the things that I, I was proud of that, you know, we had a good group and, um, unless you 
understand the team concept, uh, it's not going to be comfortable for you. You had David Wells pitch against us in 03. He was in the rotation. Ruben Sierra had some big hits. He got a big hit off Urbina, as I recall, to yeah. get a game where Urbina blew a save. Did you know, David Wells, I've never asked you this in all our years. Do you, when did you know that David Wells was hurt in the World Series <laughs> and that he was not going to pitch? Tell me the truth right now. I will tell you the truth, God's honest truth. We're, we're standing in front of our dugout for the national anthem, right? And before that game, and all of a sudden, uh, Mel Stottlemyre uh, cozies up behind me because now he just came back from the bullpen where he warmed up our starting pitcher, who was David Wells. And he whispered in my ear, I think we're going to need another pitcher. You know, it was like Jaws. You know, I think we're going to need a bigger boat, you know. Uh, and I said, oh, thank you, you know. and you know, David went out and gave it a shot, but I knew it was just a matter of time that he was going to have to, you know, see you later. Because this is the World Series, by the way. This yeah, is not yeah. a game in June. And what we thought in the Marlins side, we thought this was all part of the Yankee sort of mystique, <laughs> that you knew exactly what you were doing and that you were trying to, to mess with us in terms of our preparation and do this sort of – that was like having an opener before there were openers, yeah. David Wells was. We thought that that's what you were doing because, as you recall, we got to the World Series in 03, game one. You had just had that emotional win over the Red Sox with Boone hitting the home run. Right. We had just beaten the Cubs three in a row to get to the World Series. All of baseball, Bud Selig will admit it to this day, they wanted Red Sox-Cubs in that World Series because it would have been historic having those two teams. So we're in the World Series. Yankees-Cubs. No, no, Red Sox Cubs. Oh, Red Sox Cubs. Oh, because, yeah. And no matter what. They haven't been there forever, right? Exactly. So no that's matter right. what, yeah, that, that right. gets the biggest ratings. Bud was very interesting. When you ask Bud who he roots for, and I would talk to him about this even during the World Series, he said, I'm rooting for seven games. When that's a team right. is up two to one, I'm rooting for the team down two to one. And then he switches and goes back and forth. But they wanted Red Sox Cubs because no matter what, they've got record-breaking oh, yeah. Life. Seen it no, no question. Yeah. So it's it's Yankees. Even, you know, even though the World Series share wouldn't be as big because you had two ballparks, didn't hold a lot of people. That's exactly right. Our World Series shares, the you know, three were huge because Yankee Stadium and at that time pro player, the crowds were 60 plus every time. It right. was so loud. We got to watch Roger Clemens last game together in game four of the World Series. Oh, no, it actually wasn't his last game. <laughs> no. You promised it was his last game. So yeah. I, I, I need to know your involvement. People tell me, yeah. Yo, Joe, you knew. You no, knew. No, I didn't. Honest to God. You, you thought you were watching game? his last game? I, I believed him. I mean, well, I, I like believing people. <laughs> and, you know, he said that was it. I mean, I, you know, again, he, he may have felt that way when he when he said it, but. You know, all of a sudden I look up in the booth and he's coming back with us at, you know, in, in Yankee Stadium. And I, I, trust me, I, I had no knowledge of, and I, I don't, you know, when you're a manager, you know, somebody says something, you believe it and, you know, you move on. You, you can't worry about, you know, the storyline. I mean, I, I, you know, to me, I'm just trying to win ball games. Do you remember the standing ovation he got a pro player? Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Well, again, you know, he deserved it because he was a great pitcher. And it, it's sad now that, you know, he's not in the Hall of Fame. And there's a reason, obviously, that he hasn't been chosen. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember very distinctly uh, that, you know, that was an emotional uh, – you know, emotional time. And, and Paul O'Neill, you know, when, uh, you know, when he, what was it? Oh, uh, one, it was his last year. And the people were chanting in right field for the last home game when we were playing uh, the, the D-backs and, you know, Paul O'Neill, Paul O'Neill. And, you know, he retired, he retired, but don't think, you know, a couple of years later or a year or so later, you weren't having a discussion. What do you think? 
You think you can play, you know, you have a, I mean, it didn't go anywhere, but you had that conversation. So you never know what's going to happen. It is very bizarre. Were you a part of any of the in-game entertainment as a manager? Were you aware before game one in Yankee Stadium while the Marlins were taking BP, you guys put on your Jumbotron the history of the Yankees. You weren't playing music. You were playing all the 27, the 25 at that time, I, championships, I, I, greatest I, moments. You're never told yeah, about that or I, you are? No, I, I never paid attention to that. I, uh, you know, it, it, that wasn't something for me to think about. I worry about, you know, I, um, we were the wrong team to do that to because none of the, our young players had any idea who yeah. any of those Yankees were. And yeah. Jeff Conine was said to the players before game one, he said, can you imagine what they just did to us? Let's kick their ass. There and you go. I remember, but the young players, even, even the Derek Lees of the world looked up and said, what? Well, I didn't hear anything. What was that? But yeah. as executives, boy, we certainly heard that. Yeah, no, that's the marketing thing. We never, um, you know, as long as as long as you don't dish the other team, because that's something I was not a fan of. And and you know, we were in Oakland for a postseason uh, division series, and they they during our batting practice, they went into the interview room and they put it on the the screen, and there are players bragging about what they were going to do to us. I mean, that was a little different, you know. You know, you've got to be a little careful. You have to pick your words when you're, you know, going against some team, you know, as far as boasting. Uh, our guys saw that, and um, it, it got a little bit under their collar for that. So let me end with this question, Joe, as we think about your career, just Hall of Fame. Everyone knows we're here with Joe Torre, obviously. What would you say is your number one Above all, your number one memory as manager, a moment in time that is frozen for you, that has become, that you think about, that's your first thought as your greatest moment as manager. I saw Charlie Hayes catch the final out of the 96 World Series. I mean, that, uh, it's vivid. I mean, I could put a picture on the wall and I can tell you who's there, who's in the picture. Derek Jeter throwing his arms up like it was a field goal that was good. And, you know, especially with the, the pitch before and, you know, almost the same identical pop-up. But that was it. I mean, that broke my uh, my schneid, you know, where I had never won a World Series. And, and my coaches just smothered me after that, which was pretty special. But the one, you know, the one moment I'm sitting in the dugout, I guess it was the year you guys won, you know, beat us in the World Series in 03, uh, was sitting there in that extra inning game and watching Aaron Boone hit the home run. You know, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm saying all I want to do once we got the extra innings, because here I am sending Mariano out and I keep saying that's enough. And he said, no, it isn't. Uh but I wanted to see Manny just run off the field. And I, I got my wish in that one. Booney hit the home run. Manny never even turned around. He just jogged off the field. We, we watched that live on the team buses, Joe. We were on, heading to the, on the runway onto the tarmac to board a plane, but we couldn't board the team plane. We didn't know in where you were going. Yeah. We didn't know where we were going, Joe. So we sat there and Boone goes deep and we get on the plane and they file the flight plan to New York. I was thinking back, and I just want to mention one more moment. I could talk to you for hours, and we have. I want to mention your Safe at Home Foundation, and I don't want to let that pass. You started this in 2002. Can you just talk for a minute about why you started it, what it is, and why? It, it was one of the ML Beer Challenge daily gifts. We gave $1,000 donation to Safe at Home Foundation. Tell us about that. Well, I, I, I'm the youngest of five children, and my dad was a New York City policeman who was abuse, abusive to my mom, uh, verbally abusive to the rest of us, but um, she's the one that felt the brunt of all this physical abuse. And I never talked about it. I thought all the whispering in the house was my fault because uh, there's a big difference between me and the next youngest. And I, I never, you know, I, I thought I was born with a low self-esteem and, and uh, being a nervous kid. 
And it wasn't until fast forward in 1995, we're in Cincinnati, my wife and I, and she's pregnant. She says, you want to go to this, um, you know, want to go to this seminar with me? I said, sure. It was called Life Success. We go there. I find out it's one of these self-help seminars, four days. Day two or three, David, a speaker, and, and they split us up in groups, and I wasn't with my wife. And here, I was just going along for the ride, I thought, because I wasn't going to say no to anything she asked me to do, especially when she's pregnant eight months. And uh, the speaker just sort of uh, connected the dots for me and realized that what my dad was doing in that house really caused all my issues of being a nervous kid, low for self-esteem, um, and, and things I never wanted to talk about. It. I was embarrassed to talk about it. And, once I connected the dots, I wanted to do something, you know, to help young people. And so when we got to New York, my wife says, what charity do you want to get involved with? I said, how about domestic violence? And, and she was a little startled because I never really wanted to talk about it. And, and so we put safe rooms in schools and middle schools and high schools, uh, master's level counselor. We, we named the, the rooms, the safe rooms after my mom, Margaret, Margaret's place. We've had better than 100,000 kids come through our program. We're very proud because we know it works. Scary now during the pandemic, you know, because there's no school. And, you know, this was a place for these kids to go and be able to pour their hearts out. And now they're home. And in a lot of cases, home with someone who's being the abuser. So, you know, we've, we've had some success connecting with these kids now. But um, it's it's something that I'm very proud that we've done. I'm concerned right now because of the situation we're in. Um, and I, I actually I'm on the um, Governor Cuomo's task force uh, addressing domestic violence. And, you know, it's it's something that has been in the shadows for so many years. And as I say, I'm, I'm proud that we've. We've had these kids uh, come into our to our safe rooms, and all of a sudden they have a, a future with with some you know with some structure and and some brightness to it. Because if I didn't play baseball, who knows where I would have wound up at that point in time. Joe Torrey, I will say that you are looked at as a hero to so many people for what you did on the field as a player, as a manager, and I would argue what you have done and the legacy you've built through the Safe at Home Foundation will last much longer and have greater impact for people in need than anything you ever accomplished on the baseball field or in uniform because having one child enter that safe room, one child who, do, who has to believe better in himself or herself and be different than how you felt with your self-esteem, one child, Joe, you've changed a life way more important than a ring. I'm so thankful to know you and to be a part of that. And if you're listening, please go at Safe at Home Foundation. There's a website. Please donate. This is so important, not just during the pandemic. JoeTorrey.org. Yeah, that'll that'll get the information to them. Thank you so much. JoeTorrey.org. Joe, thank you so much for your time. It is so great to talk to you. I could have kept going. I'm not going to keep you any longer. Thank you for my one ring. You've got your four, (laughs) and I look forward to the next time. All right, David, stay healthy. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.